Welcome to The Returning Citizen, a resource for people coming out of prison and their families, sharing stories, connecting resources, and building community. Today, we have some very exciting guests in the studio. Uh, Eric and Amani, my lovely co-hosts, are unfortunately absent today. Both got pulled into work unexpectedly, but my good friend, Brandon Christopher, is filling in. Hello, hello, everyone. Say hello to the people, Brandon. Hello uh, people, and we Brandon. have a quick message uh, from Eric for both Anna and Brandon here. Uh, Eric said, thank you, Anna and Brandon. You have my deepest gratitude on behalf of myself and other returning citizens. So thank you, Eric. You are here in spirit, and we will catch you on the next episode. So first and foremost, I want to uh, introduce Brandon and then get right into Anna and kick off the uh, episode here. So today's topic is teach a man to farm growing food while creating jobs. And we'll get into that in just a moment. So Brandon, you are the founder of Canvas Detroit, co-founder of MASH Detroit, the pop-up space on the east side, an instructor for the Build Institute, teaching wonderful uh, entrepreneurs in the city, an artist, a DJ, an MC. I could go on and on, but coming uh, live via Alabama to Detroit. Yeah, five years. Appreciate you being here. Five years in the D. And we are very excited to have our guest of honor, Anna Cohn, on the podcast today. Anna is a remarkably accomplished uh, nonprofit strategist with a long history of working with returning citizens. She's worked with incarcerated persons. She's worked on anti-recidivism programs. She has a master's in public administration focused on performance measurement and management of prisoner reentry initiatives. She also sits on the board of various organizations uh, that address uh, this particular population, as well as a number of other things that we're going to get into in a bit more detail here. I apologize for the vagueness, but honestly, if I were to read off all of her uh, credentials here, we uh, wouldn't get to ask her any questions. So we welcome you to the podcast, Anna. Thank you. It's great to be here. And without further ado, we would love to uh, dive right in here uh, so that we have a lot of time to talk. So first and foremost, Anna's current project, I believe this is what's keeping you busiest uh, at present. Anna works for Recovery Park, which is an amazing organization in Detroit that I'll let her touch on in just a second here. I'd love to hear uh, just what is Recovery Park working on and tell us a bit about your personal uh, work there. Sure. So Recovery Park is what I think is the most exciting uh, initiative happening in the city right now. It's a it's a very unique public-private partnership. Uh, our mission is to create jobs for people with barriers to employment. Most often, uh, those barriers can be found among returning citizens and especially uh, folks who are kind of systematically or, or uh, consistently disenfranchised in the job market. Uh, we meet that goal by growing specialty produce for chefs in the city of Detroit and around the city. Uh, we have recently built eight high tunnels over on our 105-acre site on the east side of Detroit. Uh, it took about seven years for our founder and CEO to secure that land deal. And our founder and CEO, his name is Gary Wozniak, and I hope that we can bring him in uh, someday soon. He himself is a returning citizen and a recovering addict. Mm -hmm. He started seven successful businesses after his uh, release from prison. His The first thing he did when he was released from prison is he went to an enterprise rent-a-car and applied for a job as you know, a receptionist or something very low key. And they slammed the door in his face. And at that point, he said, you know what, I am never going to another job interview, I'm going to create my own job from now on. So that was one of that was kind of the impetus for him starting his eighth business launch, which is Recovery Park. Wow. So Recovery Park Farms is the uh, is underneath the nonprofit arm and I am the nonprofit manager. So the farm is uh, the farm is growing specialty produce for chefs, as I mentioned. And uh, 
we're doing that by making sure that the folks we bring on to the workforce are folks who are being trained in hydroponic and soil-based growing of that specialty produce. So the kind of crops that you would be seeing us growing are not the kind of crops that you might see in a grocery store, but the ones that you would expect to see on your plate at a, at a nice restaurant. Wow. So we are, are we talking a completely different quality of produce uh, with the hydroponics? And I don't know if everyone knows what you mentioned, high tunnels. Can you explain to us what high tunnels are? Yes. So there's a few. Listening? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few different types of growing structures uh, and they're all uh, they're they're all kind of suited for different crops. So I am going to do my best to explain this to you. But please understand that I am not the farmer. I, I work with the folks like the returning citizens and all the folks who are kind of coming off of those barriers to employment. You know more about it than we do. So uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, so I, I will say this. There's usually uh, three kinds of growing structures that you see most often, especially in Detroit. The, the last one you don't see as much. The first one is a Quonset hut. So a Quonset hut is looks like U-shaped bars with plastic wrapped around it. Right. A high tunnel is very similar to a Quonset hut, but it's higher tech and it looks it looks like it has kind of a pointed roof on it. So those are kind of better for high production produce. You see a lot of Quonset huts in backyard farms and gardens, and they can be any size. The high tunnels that we're using are uh, 30 feet by 100 feet. So you can get about eight of them onto a city block. Right. Okay. That is just so incredibly cool on so many levels. But I have to ask you, so you mentioned – that the program specifically focuses on providing jobs for folks with barriers to employment, specifically returning citizens. Yes. Uh, could you just help us understand why why that particular population? Absolutely. There's There are a lot of reasons the returning citizen population makes a lot of sense for our organization. So I, I was teaching in the Michigan prison system for a number of years. And through that teaching, I got to know a lot of the individuals who are coming out of prison, who are such talented entrepreneurs. They know everything there is to know about buying, selling, managing supply chains. It's just that they've never sold a legal product or filed taxes. So really what you have is a group of very, very well-versed individuals who have just never had the right avenue to kind of direct those skills. The other really positive thing about the Michigan Department of Corrections is eight of the state prisons in the state of Michigan have high tunnels. So they're actually doing, yeah, they're doing a lot of the kind of prerequisites that we need and that we would hope that our folks would come in with. And there's really no other employer in the state of Michigan who is employing folks to work in high tunnels or in hydroponic greenhouses. So we've the Department of Corrections reached out to us and said, you know what, we need to make sure we have a good relationship with you guys because you are the path for these folks who are most interested in horticulture to really have a sustained career. That's really exciting and incredible, incredible news for any returning citizen to have almost what what sounds like you're describing is a feeder yes uh you know into employment absolutely to steady and consistent income how does the rate of pay compare to other jobs outside of recovery park recovery park is very unique in that we as much as we would love to bring folks in at a really high hourly rate, we are above the prevailing wage. We we pay folks $11 an hour starting. And the really exciting thing about Recovery Park is that we offer 100% paid health benefits after 90 days. So oftentimes, especially for folks who have served really long sentences, there may be some kind of delayed uh, physical needs that they need to address. Or, you know, some are just coming out and saying, hey, I've just I've had this ankle issue for a long time and it's stopped me from getting to work. And so it's my job to say, you know what, we're going to get you the ankle brace. We're going to get you the right shoes and we're going to get you to the farm. 
And it's, it sounds like a large component in this recovery park effort. And I think you'd also be able to speak to initiatives outside of this one. But this sounds really unique in that it seems that there that compassion appears to be at the forefront. And there's a certain level of thoughtfulness and uh, compassion wrapped in that thoughtfulness that perhaps maybe we don't always see with similar initiatives that are designed to help returning citizens. Would you, can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Traditional workforce development providers, there are about 240 workforce development providers in the city of Detroit, and very few of them have been super effective beyond kind of the the market rate of uh, understanding the facts about returning citizens and recidivism. Recovery Park is unique in that we we own the jobs on the farm, but what we're doing is while you have really incredible organizations on the service side, you know, they're amazing organizations like Goodwill and Focus Hope and Salvation Army, they provide the very basic needs that a person has, you know, so so that they're never worried about where their next meal is coming from. But there's the disconnect between those social service agencies and the jobs. So let's say the the Googles and the Quickens and the Accentures of the world. Because if you sent someone coming out of Goodwill over to a place like Accenture, what would happen is you might miss a step in between. There's nothing that links the supportive services to the actual jobs in a lot of these situations. So what Recovery Park has done is we have included in our business model something that we're calling the Associate Support Platform, which I've been responsible for designing. And the associate support platform exists so that there is never a reason that someone can't come to work. So the uh, and as Jacob said, you know, I, I got my master's in uh, public administration around performance measurement of prisoner reentry initiatives. So something I always like to say about that is that in this country, when someone is released from prison, if they are not rearrested within two years, they are they come off the radar. It doesn't matter if they're homeless, living on the street, eating out of a garbage can. They are considered a success to the U.S. And you and I and everybody here knows that that is not success. So one of the key pieces that also kind of uh, provides a competitive advantage for Recovery Park is that we are measuring housing, mental health, physical health, substance abuse, family reunification uh faith communities education legal and parole and anything that would stop a person from maintaining a career anything that would make a person vulnerable so let's say we hire a recovering addict at recovery park and that individual appears to have some kind of issue and we test that individual and they test positive for drugs they do not lose their job they are sent to recovery programming they're sent to either 12 step programs or if it's it needs to be inpatient they're sent to that and then we say you know what you get 3 days here and then you got to be right back to work no excuses so oftentimes you have a lot of employers who say well if you drop or you're in test once and it's dirty you lose your job but but that's not who we are because we know that it's a very complicated approach to making sure that someone has all of the things that they need not just a job to be successful and a lot of times those avenues are hard to draw when you're unfamiliar with kind of the the social services that do exist so for someone getting out after 30 years they may just not be aware of the the myriad services that exist in Detroit is this a unique model to recovery park the uh the types of outcomes that you're optimizing for and the things you just described? Or is that part of a framework that you uh, learned perhaps in your uh, master's program or in other parts of your experience? Is this something you've developed or is that is that an existing framework that uh, 
is available to other folks? This is actually something that I've developed. And I developed this based on studying performance measurement and the way that we collect information. No information is being collected on how housing affects a person's ability to stay out of prison. How does substance abuse, family, kids, how does any of that have an impact on a person's ability to stay out of prison? We don't know. What I initially wanted to do was go in and talk about jail reentry. So, of course, the difference between prisons and jails is prisons are longer term and jails are kind of the the in and out, more of the revolving door. And my initial kind of hope was to say, what are we doing for folks coming out of jail? Because those are the most vulnerable. There are no training programs inside of a jail because for the short amount of time that they have them, it's it's it can be really difficult to kind of put in anything really meaningful. Gotcha. One more question uh, before we move on. So you mentioned the uh, prisons have the the greenhouses. Yes. Uh, there, are there actual training programs happening inside of prisons with regards to growing food? Yes. There's folks coming out of prison that are already trained in these skills that you guys are able to hire? Absolutely. One of the coolest things about the horticulture programs is they essentially provide all of the education a person would need to be a master gardener. Wow. And that's a that's a pretty good job when you're out in the world, especially when you're in a place like Detroit where the food scene is just is burgeoning. And so – you know, there's there's uh, it's kind of interesting because last time I was at one of the prisons with a high tunnel, I was out in this onion patch where these onions like the size of your head were growing and it was just the coolest thing. And I was like, oh, man, what are you guys going to do with these thousands of of onions? And they were like, well, we can't take them and use them in the kitchen. So we donate them to a food pantry. And that just blew my mind, the amount of food that is produced really beautifully in those state prisons that cannot be utilized because of the 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 public or I'm sorry, the, the privatized meal programs in the prisons. So these folks have an opportunity to grow for the community. But what they do is they leave with horticulture certificates. And what's actually going on right now is our hydroponic farmer is working with uh, one of the instructors at one of the high tunnels to really design a hydroponic training program. Incredible. So first of all, quick shout out to my mom, who's also a master gardener. Hey, mom. <laughs> uh, but this actually segues really nicely. Uh, Eric gave me some questions uh, in advance here that he wanted to make sure that I covered. Um, so Eric was curious to know, and I think uh, you just hit on this uh, initially at the highest level. Um, but how do you find uh, or select the individuals, uh, the returning citizens that you do choose to hire? Um, also, particularly curious to know if there's any women in the program. Um, and are you guys hiring? Great. All great questions. So the way that uh, the way that we hire is actually not based on experience, although experience is always great. The first two associates that we hired back in October, neither of them had any experience farming. And uh, we now have taught them almost everything that the farmers have in their brain so that they can go on and hopefully also become managers and supervisors and kind of carry that forward. We ultimately want to be an employee-owned business. So we hope that the folks who are joining us now and staying with us for a term of three years, and I, I just want to point out, we really hope that folks stay with us for three years because, as I mentioned, the two-year success rate is something we want to move past. We have to show that that careers are being developed. And in the hydroponic field, once you know everything there is to know about being a hydroponic farmer, you can go anywhere in the world and make about six figures. So it's a wonderful opportunity for folks to develop that career. So we actually really are our main criteria is personality. You have to fit in with our team. You have to embody that mission of wanting to create jobs for people with barriers to employment. Um, my my the founder of our organization always talks about this this corporate culture they have at NASA where uh, you know someone this guy this writer was going around and talked to the CEO and and he said you know. 
know, what what are you doing here? And he said, well, my goal here is to put a man on the moon. So as the guy was walking out, he he pulled the janitor aside and he said, you know what? Why are you here? He said, I'm here to put a man on the moon. So it's that shared mission. It's understanding that we're all here for the same reason. It doesn't matter what our educational background is or our job experience. We are all here to create jobs for people with barriers to employment. So it's wonderful to come in with some farming experience or some food experience, but it's absolutely not required. Regarding your other two, we actually just brought on four more associates. We're very, very excited. And we're going to be hiring between four and six more associates in the fall. So for folks who are interested, uh, we are, of course, equal opportunity employer, not just for folks with barriers to employment. And of course, a barrier to employment d- doesn't just mean, uh, you know, someone with a felony record. It could be a physical disability or, you know, a mental disorder or homelessness or, or anything that creates it so that a person cannot be traditionally employed. Uh, we are very excited to be hiring women in the next couple of years. What I will say right now is as we pilot the program and simply based on kind of facts and you, that you see in the criminal justice system, you're seeing a lot more men in the criminal justice system, although women are the fastest growing population in prisons right now. So what we want to do is make sure that when we roll out a program for women, we're also being very, uh, very attentive to the needs of their children and the needs of their families. Mm-hmm. So as we pilot this out, we're really kind of focusing on the individuals and we're focusing on the largest target uh, market, if you will. But I really hope that within the first three years of the program, we do have some services available to women that are really kind of customized for them because the services are very different that that are provided to men versus women. And usually women's services include a, a litany of, of children uh, needs around children as well. As far as the Master Gardener, you mentioned three years staying with the program. Does it take three years to become a a Master Gardener? It takes, uh, I think it takes less than two years to become a Master Gardener. So what we're doing is we're giving everybody the skills that they need around soil-based farming. Within a year, and this was, I started to talk about this but didn't finish, within three, actually within two years, we're going to have all glass greenhouses, which will be hydroponic. So just so you have an idea. There are crops that grow better hydroponically than soil-based and, and vice versa. So uh, soil-based crops, you know, things like squash, root vegetables, those are all great in soil-based farming. When you get into kind of the the leafy stuff, the the lettuces, all of that, you know, that's better kind of grown hydroponically. But you have to make sure that the costs, we have to make sure that the costs are kind of breaking even. So we do have a break-even plan within the first five years of the organization running. Uh, so it's you know, those learning all of the different phases we believe is going to take three years, but we truly hope that folks stay with us much longer than three years. Like I said, we want to be an employee owned company. We also want to be seeding businesses. So something that we're very committed to at Recovery Park is if someone comes to us as an associate and says, you know what, I see that you're doing A, B and C. I think I could really help if I started doing, you know, what if I started a germination business for you, which means kind of unseeding a seed, uh, you know, and, and our approach to that is we want to help you jumpstart your business. We'll start you off as an investor. Once you pay us back, you'll own the business, you'll own 90%, we'll own 10%. So we have that built in as well, because we know, as I was saying before, so many talented entrepreneurs are coming out of the prison system. That's really exciting. So Anna, before the before we started recording, um, you mentioned something interesting, which was that uh, restaurants and restaurateurs, uh, it's a type of business that seems to be uh, particularly friendly um, with hiring returning citizens for a number of reasons. So I'd love you to kind of touch on that broadly speaking. Um, and I actually noticed uh, you have an awesome uh, Facebook group called Chow Line. So that's C-I-A-O-L-I-N-E. 
uh, on Facebook. It's a group where you're sharing a variety of, of resources and news and different helpful tips related to returning citizens. So everyone should check that out. But you post a lot about the food industry, naturally, as this is something that you're directly involved with. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Shaoline, um, but also uh, a recent post where you said, I can't tell you how often restaurants are posting jobs. Uh, to folks with records and other barriers, they're desperate for solid, reliable talent with a link to a culinary arts uh, training program for returning citizens. Could you kind of speak a little bit about Chowline and, and why restaurants and uh, and what you think about that? Absolutely. I I, I started Chowline because I, I was realizing that posting all of these want ads and resources to my Facebook page alone was not really that effective. Um, I have a lot of friends who are returning citizens on my Facebook, but really I wanted to reach a broader audience because there are only so many times you can post for the same, you know, dishwasher position and try to, you know, not have 90% of your friends be like, this doesn't apply to me. What is this? So I started this group called Chowline because I started to work with a lot of chefs. And, and part of this is because I got to know a lot of the chefs through our farmers. And our chefs in Detroit are hurting for talents. Uh, I have a chef that I work with who will set up 10 job interviews. He, if he's lucky, he'll get two folks actually showing up and maybe one of them will be qualified to do the work. So what's happening, much like the Recovery Park community where folks are coming out of prison with some skills, Culinary arts is a, actually a place where a lot of folks coming out of the prison system have have skills because they have been working in kitchens or, you know, uh, learning how to prepare food or learning. Uh, they ha There's a program in the prisons for uh, hospitality. Uh, there's a program in the prisons for different different uh, kinds of chefs. So there's something called a garmoge. They have specific training for that. Um, so. What what I noticed happening was I actually started working with the Michigan Prisoner Reentry Initiative and I said, you know what, I'm hearing from all the food people over here about how they can't they can't keep they can't keep talent around because it's these are kind of transient jobs. And over here, I'm hearing there are people who aren't being employed because of their records and they have all of this food experience. I mean, some of them have 20 years of food experience. So I said, you know what? This is not a huge bridge to jump across. So I actually I got on the Detroit area chefs page and I posted something. I said, hey, are any of you willing to hire someone with a record? And the response was overwhelming. I heard from a ton of chefs who said, send me everyone you have. And so I started kind of using that as a way to feed really positive candidates to these chefs who really needed some good folks. And it's been very successful. Uh, the folks that we've been putting into restaurants have been really successful. And kind of the nice thing about still being linked with me is when something comes up around housing or substance abuse, the restaurants always know that they can call someone who's got their back. That's great. Um, and this was actually something uh, Eric and I have been talking for a while about doing a panel soon on the podcast, um, specifically around businesses that are open to hiring returning citizens, more broadly speaking. But then when we were talking about this earlier this week, when we knew Anna was coming on, we realized that there's probably an opportunity or there's definitely an opportunity to actually do a panel uh, more hyper focused on restaurateurs uh, that are specifically looking to hire. Um, so we've got some ideas in store. So look out for that soon. So another quick question from uh, Eric uh, <laughs> coming remotely here. Um, so Eric wanted to know, just uh, generally speaking, uh, Anna, what do you feel is the most amazing part about helping a returning citizen become a productive member of society? And if, Everything about it is amazing. If, if I could maybe add a pre-question to that one um, before you tell us what's amazing about it. Can you share with us how you even got into the specific line of work? Because obviously you're not in the shallow end of the pool. 
as far as being involved with returning citizens, being involved with incarcerated individuals and doing this incredible work. So how did you how did you find yourself even in this arena and and what's really driving you? That's a that's a huge question. So I I will I will summarize kind of the background and how I got into this because I could talk for a while about this, but I I will limit my words. When I was nine years old, I started a nonprofit in the city of Detroit uh, for to benefit the homeless population. This was in the Cass Corridor. This was back in the day when there was when Midtown was not Midtown. It was still the Cass Corridor. And uh, I started working with a, a day shelter out there. And I would just go there and kind of get to know the folks because I, I just had this At nine I, years old. So the, the what happened before that was I was in Washington, D.C. with my parents when I was about seven or eight, and we drove by this kind of tenement of of homeless men. And they were on top of one of those sewer grates where all the steam comes up and they just had all these sheets around them. And it was about seven guys. And my mother drove by and I, I lost it. And I said, Mom, you have to go back. You have to go back. We got to we got to give these guys a dollar. You know, we got to go back. And there was something that just really I, I could not rationalize in my head and I couldn't I couldn't be at peace with it unless I went and understood what the heck was going on here. So my mother drove back around, God bless her, and I got out and my whole family sitting in the car like, what is this seven year old doing? Like, what is she doing? Why does she want to talk to these? And I was like, tell me how you got here. Tell me why you are here, because I see the White House right behind you and I can't rationalize while why you're sitting here. And our government takes taxes to support folks like you and you're here. And they were all veterans and they were all folks who had been in and out of the prison system. And I just remember thinking to myself, I may be seven or eight, but but there is no excuse for me to just sit around and do nothing. So coming back to Detroit, I got to know the the scene a little bit better. And I said, I said to my parents, I said, will you guys help me start a nonprofit? And they said, you're adorable, of course. And so uh, will you tell us the name of the nonprofit, please, real quick. The adorable. name of the nonprofit was A Hug, which stood for Anna Helps Us Give. Oh, wow. And I, I so came awesome. up, I came up, I, <laughs> so, awesome. so I, I, I came up with that name myself and my parents thought it was adorable and of course, most things people do when they're nine are adorable. But there was this thing that made me crazy, which was all of my parents' friends would come to me and say, oh, you know, this is such a great thing that you're doing. Oh, look at you doing. And I would get so angry because I'm like, you're a 40-year-old. You have above and beyond the ability that I have. What are you doing? And they never so knew how to answer that question. And I would say, I started a nonprofit. You ask them that yes, question? Yes. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, I guess you're making me think about it. Right. If if I have a hundred and this guy has fifty and he needs seventy five and I only need seventy five, why wouldn't I give up twenty five? I don't understand. I've never been able to rationalize that. So that's a lot where this drive came from. And I actually got started really in the homelessness u- universe before I got involved in the prisoner reentry universe. But truly, when you start to take it apart, they're they're so close. They are they are totally embedded within one another. And you have a lot of different social issues going on that that create that. So, you know, you may have um folks coming from broken homes. You may have folks coming out of, you know, communities where gangs were very prevalent. But what you always have is this confluence between crime and homelessness. So it's very important for us to kind of start to take apart the pieces because I'm certainly not going to be the one to end homelessness, but I may well be the one to present some really important information about prisoner reentry that informs the way that we make we make policies around our folks who are hardest hit. And so you also have a, a background with political organizing, I do. Um, which I'm sure we could go into uh, quite a bit, but it's a little off topic. 
Um, but I do want to use that as a as a transition here to talking about specifically uh, your work in the city of Detroit, particularly. Um, so you're a member of the Detroit Returning Citizen Task Force. Yes. Um, and I do want to give a quick shout out uh, to Janae Ayers, uh, Justin Johnson, that whole team. Uh, just an amazing um, program and lots of exciting initiatives being worked on right now. Uh, we're going to be going into more detail on a future episode, hopefully having uh, Councilwoman Ayers on the program very soon um, to go into more detail about that. Uh, but I wanted to to ask you directly, Anna, because I think you know a lot more about this than uh, than I do, and certainly than most of the people in my network. Um, how is the city of Detroit handling its influx of of returning citizens? The mayor uh, even touched on this during the State of the City this year. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was like three thousand per year. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I think it's. I, I think it it's somewhere between three and five. I want to say. So it's a it's a large number of folks returning from prison back into Detroit specifically. Um, so I was hoping you could just kind of touch at a higher level um, on what is the city doing. Uh, that you're excited about uh... besides recovery park besides recovery park <laughs> <laughs> which i will say uh the 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 council the city council and the mayor have been incredibly supportive of recovery park and it's one of the initiatives that they've kind of said okay these are the kinds of things we want to support these are the kinds of things we want to see happen i give major kudos to councilwoman ayers she has kind of taken these steps to implement something that hasn't been thought about in such a kind of thoughtful way in approaching it from a very uh, inclusive, in a, an inclusive way. And what I mean by that is, you know, initially I, we actually met with uh, Councilwoman Ayers and we told her a bit about Recovery Park. And, you know, she said, this is something that's very close to my heart. I have a lot of relatives who have been in and out and some who are still in the system. She said, I want I want to know how your approach is different. So I started talking a little bit about that evaluation and that piece that's so important for us to understand what are the pieces that send a person back? What are the pieces that destabilize a person? And she said, you know what, we should be we should really be talking about this stuff citywide. So she began to put together a group of really amazing folks, a lot of folks who were returning citizens. And we got together and we just kind of started talking about what are those voids? What do we want to see? Of course, I kept pushing the data entry or not the data entry, but I kept pushing the evaluation piece because it is so important for us at the end of the day to know where we're spending our money. I think that folks like Councilwoman Ayers are taking really bold steps and and along with the mayor saying, you know what, we do see this influx. More folks parole to Detroit than any other place in Michigan, obviously. It's our largest city. And of course, when you look at racial breakdown, we have a, a lot of issues we need to dig into from all sides around around criminal justice and prisoner reentry. But we need to take more unique approaches. And I really appreciate that that's something that the council is committed to. The other piece that I want to just mention is the mayor has established the Office of Workforce Development, which is something I'm very excited about. It's led by uh, Jeff uh, Donofrio. And uh, there's an individual I've been working with named Sam Marvin. And the two of us have been working really closely around this culinary training piece. Uh, the Detroit Reentry Center is a new prisoner reentry sort of facility. It's in the old Ryan Correctional Facility, and folks are going there now for the last six to 12 months of their sentence to get adjusted to being released. So a lot of those initiatives are really great, and and I'm excited to see them in, being invested in. Part of the difficulty, though, again, is that we don't know what works. And this is going to this is going to make everybody crazy until they figure it out, because, OK, so we'll invest in jobs. But again, how do you invest in jobs unless you know that someone has the ability to get to work? 
they how do how do you navigate a bus system how do you call an employer and say you know what the bus is late that means i'm going to be an hour late and i might be a no call no show and oh my gosh if i'm a no call no show i'm going to i'm going to lose my job there, there, we have to do more in order to prepare our workforce. So I appreciate that the mayor's office of workforce development and the city council are taking a more active approach to that. I really hope that it can be rooted in evidence, evidence based practices, which are crucial to understanding the criminal justice system and the reentry system. This was actually something I was on the uh, Calvin Moore uh, leading questions with Calvin Moore, which also records out of the studio a few weeks ago talking about mass incarceration. And that was a hotbed topic that we hit on, which was just the lack of decision making based on data that exists in this sphere. Yes. I'm in the tech world. So like everything is is focused on decision making based on data. So it's really hard for me to wrap my head around like how how are these decisions being made if not based on what we know actually works. But I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. So that's exciting that uh, we have folks, uh, you know, in influential positions that are that are advocating for that type of uh, anal- you know analytical approach. I do um, want to I do want to mention something about please. that though, which is uh, before I was uh, working here in Detroit, I was actually working for a nonprofit out of New York City that was helping men start their own businesses. And prior to that, I was helping Fulton County in Atlanta, Georgia, start up a jail reentry program. So the uh, the Fulton County government got a Second Chance Act grant, and the Second Chance Act was the largest influx of federal money into selected state governments or city governments or city councils to do innovative work around reentry. Of the folks who receive Second Chance Act grants, we are currently evaluating approximately 11% of the grantees. So what that means is not only do we not know what's going on with the other 89% of the funds from the Second Chance Act grant, Mm -hmm. but again, that measure of success in the Second Chance Act is does a person go back to prison? So even in the data, I mean, the data that we attempt to create is not is not helpful in understanding how to move forward. You would never, as an entrepreneur, put $30 million into something and say, you know what, hopefully 11% of this works. Right. And right. by the way, if it doesn't, I don't really care. And the common mm-hmm. adage uh, in the tech world is what you measure is what you is what you get. I'm completely butchering that. But the idea <laughs> that whatever you choose to measure and optimize for is what, what you, you get. will optimize. So if you're, think- if, you're, if you're focusing on the wrong thing that you're optimizing towards, you're going to get the wrong results. And I think that this really speaks to a lack of desire for true optimization, which I think also speaks to the way that policymakers often view individuals who are incarcerated, which is not at all in most cases. And if they do take any substantial view, it's still not as a human, not as a full person. And I think that that's borne out in this lack of 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 really care in terms of seeing what's happening with the dollars, what is happening to the individuals who are supposed to be receiving this assistance. And, I, you know, it's unfortunate, but I do think it really, really illustrates where the hearts and minds of the policymakers are. Not to mention, I mean, when you when you talk about an issue like this, that that uh, is so reliant on policy decisions. It's such a safer position for a politician to be tough on crime and keep things simple and just not go out on a limb and, and you know, risk their reputation around something related to a population that so many people dismiss. Um, it's a much safer position to just say, I'm tough on crime, no questions asked. That's what it is. And, and to, to go that route. So I, I would love to, to dig into that one deeper um, on a future episode. But I do want to keep uh, 
keep talking with Anna about her specific experience here. Um, something else I, I, I noticed. So, so you're on the board of, of Citizens Alliance on Prisons and Public Spending. Um, so I actually did not know a ton about that organization. I'd heard of it. Um, so when I was researching, uh, getting ready for this episode, uh, I dug into a bit more. It's really uh, incredible, the, the work that they're doing. So I encourage everyone to, to look into that. But um, at the highest level, it's a policy slash advocacy uh, organization that's working to shift our country's mindset around prison spending. Um, so it plays into this whole kind of policy, how money's allocated uh, type concept that we're talking about here. Um, I noticed in the official mission statement uh, that it, it says specifically uh, to one part of the mission is to better prepare people for success after release. Um, so I was curious to know if you could speak to uh, what could we do as a society if resources were better allocated towards preparing people better for success after release? A few different things. I think that we could do a few different things. One of them, many of them rather, are, are reliant on funding. And, uh, you know, as you talk about kind of divesting in the the keeping people locked up and talking more about community corrections, I, I'm a big advocate of saying, listen, you know, someone if someone has four drug crimes and they're related to a person's addiction, that person is probably not a criminal. That person probably needs some kind of continuum of care that is not within the criminal justice system currently. So CAPS or the Citizens Alliance on Prisons and Public Spending is the largest uh, policy directing organization around criminal justice in the state. And uh, a lot of what we discuss at CAPS is has to do with House bills. So, for instance, uh, there was a bill that, that I think it was House Bill 1340 was around presumptive parole and saying, OK, if someone has a parole date and they haven't been to the parole board, they need to go to the parole board. It's really it seems like it should be simple stuff. But a lot of it is just someone folks are not really paying attention to the rules that we laid out in the beginning and kind of saying, OK, well, you know, uh, there there's something about medical parole is one of the things that that CAPS has taken on. And I'll never forget when I was working uh, for uh, Governor Granholm in the state of Michigan, I went to my first commutation hearing and they wheeled this guy in who was such I mean, he he could not move. He he almost could not breathe. And folks were going back and forth about, well, do we let this guy out? Well, you know, he was a danger to society 40 years ago. And gosh, what if he becomes a danger again? And I'm sitting there thinking this guy doesn't even know what's going on. But yet we as a state are paying $80,000 a year for him to sit in a wheelchair. I can't rationalize this again because it's irrational. It's irrational. It's irrational. So when you see things like that happening, there are so many easy ways that we as a state could do a little bit better, save a little more money and start to invest a little more in in public public programs for reentry, but also place based programs for reentry. What would you say is the largest barrier to having what really seems like uh, from what you just described, very common sense solutions to some of the problems that plague the criminal justice system and that maybe sort of clog up uh, the flow of people who are not uh, a social threat um, from being released and being uh, placed back into society as productive citizens. Prisons are a huge employer. Prisons are a huge economic driver. Prisons are. Um, Necessary in in many cases for I would say approximately twenty percent of the population who is incarcerated. Uh, there there is a there is a time and a place for for prisons. Um, I think that uh, I'll 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 tell you a short 
short story. There was an there was a story that came out in the news recently. I think it was a warden from a prison in Louisiana wrote a letter to the governor complaining about how he had too many empty beds in his prison because the reentry program seemed to be working pretty well. And he said, I'm not going to be able to meet my budget stuff for the year unless I get these prison beds full. And so he was appealing to the governor to say, can we maybe destabilize some of these reentry programs so that I can keep my business up and running? And that is very, very common. Yes. It's very, it's very, it's very shameful and it's sad, but it's truly, I mean, if you think about the Department of Corrections and Corrections, our corrections budget is one of the top three spending categories in the country and the state all over. And no other country is that skewed. Yeah. And, and I want to just point out really quick, uh, to, to listeners out there. So something that excites me about, uh, criminal justice reform in general is the, uh, ability to reach out across political divides. Uh, Anna just mentioned something interesting, which is that you're talking about budget reallocation to save money. We're not talking about expanding a welfare program or something like that. You're talking about reallocating money so that we're spending it more wisely, getting the outcomes that everyone wants, keeping everyone safe, uh, you know, protecting people, all those types of things, and reducing the budget of these programs. So all of these things can actually happen in tandem, and, and that's what fires me up personally. Um, one of the things that fires me up about this type of work. Um, I want to move on, Nana, just because I, I want to make sure that we uh, we could you know talk about any of these individual issues uh, all day. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you specifically. So I know you have a background in uh, working with entrepreneurs uh, who have come out of prison and helping them start businesses. Um, I know that you're involved with Luck Inc., which is an amazing, amazing mentorship program for uh, at-risk individuals, at-risk youth, returning citizens, prisoners. Um, so my question for you is just, uh, for, for folks out there that are look, that are maybe returning from prison and looking for that type of mentorship, where are some places that they can turn? That's a great question. And I, I just want to say one, one quick thing about Luck, uh, Luck Incorporated, which stands for leading under correct knowledge. The two co-founders of Luck, uh, Mario Bueno and Rick Speck, who I've got to get over here, here soon. We would love to have them on the podcast. They're phenomenal. They both, they both spent a lot of time in prison. Um, I, you know, Mario, for instance, he was incarcerated at 16 for a life without parole sentence, spent the first several years in solitary confinement because nobody knew what to do with him as such a young man in a men's prison. So what happened is these gentlemen, when they were coming out of prison, they started a kind of a I don't want to butcher this too much, but it was sort of like a talking circle. It was sort of like a supportive group um, mediation, anger management type communication thing at uh, at one of the prisons near Jackson. And this was for folks when they were getting released. So this was around anger management, around uh mediation how to they were actually doing certified mediator programs in the prison at the time so both of these individuals and some of the other gentlemen that they worked with were certified mediators so when they were released from prison they found it incredibly difficult to actually work with the prison system because of course when you're released from prison you're not allowed to associate with folks who have come out of prison and so that makes it very difficult because if you're working in an environment that's open to let's say hiring folks with barriers to employment or felony record i mean it, it, we just we we make it incredibly incredibly difficult so those training programs are crucial so of course luck is wonderful um and what they do is they actually have a desk inside the lawton parole office where the kind of the toughest cases are sent to them and they say, all right, dude, listen, 
I'll then take you out to McDonald's. I'll get you that hamburger you've been wanting for 30 years, but then we got to get down to business and we got to figure out where you're going to work and where you're going to get your pair of shoes that you need. So those kind of basic needs programs are so important. And a lot of times we do have those terrific workforce development programs, but they're not, they're not always publicized well enough. So I think that luck is a great one. Um, there's a group that's been very active in the prison system for a long time called Chance for Life. They come in and they do mentorship programs uh, with folks who are incarcerated and folks coming out of prison. But there's a lot of, I, I will say there's a lot of competition in Detroit, especially because of the new focus around workforce development for funds and federal dollars and all of those things that allow a program to run. So you're seeing a few more of them crop up. One of the reasons that I really like luck and one of the reasons that, of course, I'm at Recovery Park and I'm very committed to it is because the leaders of those organizations have walked the walk. There are plenty of organizations, and I used to work for one where folks say, you know what, this is very, very important and we need to focus on this, but they don't have that real world experience. They don't understand. Exactly. I taught it. So when I was teaching, when I was teaching in the prison system, I actually would bring in a couple of entrepreneurs who who had been formerly incarcerated, who have successful businesses. And I can sit in front of a classroom of, of 30 men all day and talk about writing a business plan. But when you bring in those entrepreneurs who have walked the walk, that's when the mindset starts to change. And they say, oh, he did that. Does that mean I could do that? Yeah, it absolutely means you could do that. Absolutely. That's exciting. And that's a, a big part of our mission here. When we talk about sharing stories on The Returning Citizen, I that sense of uh, promoting positive role models uh, is a major part of our mission and a big part of uh, Eric's passion um, in terms of how he can set an example for other folks to help them avoid some of the pitfalls that that he's met. Um, So uh, I appreciate you highlighting that. Um, So what I'd like to do now, I want to uh, just uh, do a quick plug for an upcoming event in Detroit. Um, And then I wanted to to give the floor to Anna and see if there was anything else that she wanted to uh, plug that's upcoming. Um, but PCAP, the Prison Creative Arts Project, um, an amazing program based in Ann Arbor. Uh, they've been doing their, uh, it's a program that teaches prisoners, um, the arts. So it's visual arts, writing, uh, theater, um, and performance and, and a variety of different things. Uh, they just had their annual showcase in Ann Arbor that I think just ended, but they're doing an additional showcase for the award winning pieces from that showcase from May 5th to the 27th. And that's at the University of Michigan's Detroit Center Gallery. It's completely free, open to the public, um, and we highly encourage everyone listening to go check that out. Eric and I went uh, a few weeks ago, and the work is breathtaking. I'm pretty excited. I really want to see that one. Um, and I was curious to know if, if anybody else had anything else upcoming uh, that they wanted to uh, touch on. Well, I do want to mention uh, one thing about PCAP because Recovery Park was a site for when they were doing when they brought their exhibition on the road. We were one of the galleries where they featured their art. So we had a lot of the art hanging up in our upstairs in the upstairs portion of our office. And like you said, Jake, I mean, it is just incredible. And you see I mean, you see everything from the most beautiful landscapes you've ever seen to some kind of painting about cancer. I mean, the the, the range of art and the range of messages, you can feel the passion in, in these in among these artists. And so for them to be able, it, it means that the folks who I have worked with who see their work be attractive on the outside are more excited about that than anything else. I mean, they they love to know that their message has been shared. And so often that takes the form of art. So big fan of PCAP, go see the show. You're, you're not going to be disappointed. I would also like to invite any listeners who are interested in arts opportunities to email me at canvasxdetroit at gmail.com. 
um, prior to this point, uh, I had not even really considered uh, the fact that many individuals who are incarcerated hold within them an immense creative talent. And uh, I, I would love to serve as an outlet if uh, if anyone listening is interested in having a show, if you've got plenty of pieces that, uh, you know, form a cohesive unit that you'd like to display. I have space for that. So that's a conversation that I'm certainly very open to. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to encourage listeners uh, to continue to build on any uh, creative talent that you do have. Um, art is a multi-billion dollar industry and um, it very much like the restaurant industry, I think, uh, does not necessarily place the same barriers that many other areas of, uh, of, of professional endeavor uh, might. So please do, uh, once again, canvasxdetroit at gmail.com. Shoot me an email, share your work. That's incredible. And one more quick thing about that. I, the PCAP, I forgot to mention, also does have a transitional program. I, I'm forgetting the name of that program, but for essentially the most promising, uh, professionally promising artists coming out of the program, uh, they actually do help them connect with opportunities on the outside when they do get out. So we're actually going to be highlighting uh, Vanessa Mayeski um, from that program and uh, my buddy Matthew Schmidt, uh, who's been involved in that program for a very long time. Uh, he was the one that actually turned me on to PCAP originally. We're going to be having a conversation uh, about that reentry piece of their program leading up to to the showcase um, in May. So very excited to kind of dig into that in more detail. And uh, perhaps Brandon will be uh, joining us again for that conversation. Hopefully so. I definitely would love to get involved with PCAP just in general. Incredible. Um, I'm really excited about that. I also awesome. want to mention one thing just about about art and the kind of art that you see coming out of the prison system. Writing is the the writing that is coming out of our state prisons is mind blowing. I mean, you you're you're there. You're right there with these guys in their cells and you you hear from their mouths, you know, what is really going on. And so I just wanted to make a little plug for a group called Writer's Block, which is a group that goes inside of the Macomb Correctional Facility every week. They work with a lot of their poets to create uh, poetry books, varieties of poetry books. And uh, they 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 go in when I was going in to do to do my teaching. So I got to know them very well. And they got they uh, had this event about two years ago at uh, the DIA, at the Diego Rivera Court, where a lot of us were invited to come and read for our students or for our families or for the folks who, you know, were very close to us. So I had the amazing honor of reading for an individual whose name is James Thomas. Uh, James was locked up at age 14 for a, a gang-related murder. Um he was born to a 14-year-old mother, you know, raised on the streets, and he has been trying to appeal this juvenile life without parole sentence that he's had for years. And I am going to keep a smile while I say that he is being released at the end of the month. And Ooh, he has incredible. he has gotten his his appeal has gone through. And, you know, the, finally reconsidering these juvenile lifers without parole, his writing, I, I just can't wait to see him come out and kind of review all that writing and say, yes, we're going to create something out of this. And we can because you do have that kind of talent. Big for, shout out to James. That's incredible. Yes. For, for those interested in this type of thing, uh, they are selling a book of the poems at the PCAP event as well. Uh, that I actually, it's not just poems, it's prose, it's storytelling. Um, and I, I actually did uh, get a copy of the book. And um, one of the pieces that was read at the reading was this metaphor about uh, overripened bananas. It was a, you know, about black bananas and this concept of, uh, some people see it as rotten fruit, but that you can make it into banana bread and that 
he'll be the sweetest piece of banana bread that you've oh my god i, I <laughs> yeah. was i was i was crying sounds was, like use of quals could oh be quals l yeah it was it was unbelievable i apologize that i don't uh remember the name of the writer offhand but i'll make sure i uh correct that so yeah so and i'd love to ask you so any uh final thoughts i mean i'd love to um if you're interested we can come back to the the previous question just about kind of what what's the most amazing part about uh helping returning citizens find uh find jobs and and get on their own feet um or if there's anything else that you want to uh to highlight uh the floor is yours I think that the returning citizen community is is one of the most underrated communities that that we have here in the city and I mean throughout the state um I I have been working with this population for years and I I have I never cease to be amazed by the talent and the the mental wherewithal that exists when you meet someone who has come out of prison after 30 years and and they can simply hold it together, I mean, that blows my mind. It, it, it blows my, my mind. mind. I talk to folks who have gotten out after 30 years who said, well, you know, I was in solitary confinement for 10 years and, and I, I, I cannot. I'm very grateful and, and blessed that I have not been there. But at the same time, you know, from an academic perspective, I keep looking at this and saying, but, but we got to do better. We can do better. We just need to package this differently and understand what the evidence has to say. I, I want to say that, you know, especially on the entrepreneurial side, it's it's a place where if we begin to invest, if we truly invest in those entrepreneurs who are coming out of these spaces – that's where we will see really the innovative Detroit that I think so many of us are looking for, especially in those neighborhoods where we really need to see more of that economic activity going on. So I'm very excited about what's going on with Recovery Park in the 105 acres that we have in the Shane Ferry neighborhood. There's an old farmer's market, the Shane Ferry market. That's that's our space now. And uh, it's it's just a very exciting opportunity for us to see ourselves grow as entrepreneurs and to create an opportunity, a true economic opportunity by taking Detroit's two largest underutilized assets, land and amazing talent, and putting them together to grow something incredible, literally grow something incredible. But I want to say something about the entrepreneurial spirit of returning citizens by just short sharing a short story. When I was teaching, um, when I was teaching in the in the prison system, I had a student, one of my smartest students. He was he was so good. But he was so stubborn and it just took me it took me weeks to get him to say, OK, what is it that you're going to do for a business? And I, I said, what do you like? What do you want to do? And he said, I don't like anything. I don't want to do anything. And I eventually kind of pulled out of him. I said, all right, what do you like? And he said, well, I like Frisbee golf. I said, what if I told you that there is nowhere there are no facilities in Detroit that have a Frisbee golf course? And he said, what? <laughs> and I said, I'm telling you that there is an opportunity for what you're doing. I said, if you're committed to doing this, I've got the people who can make it happen. I've got the land that I can make it happen. And he said, well, what if I did a Frisbee golf course in an old like abandoned factory? And I said, changed. that's brilliant. And people would come and they would love your story. And from that point on, everything changed. He would bring in these budget projections and these business plans. It just blew my mind. And so we got to the end of the class and, and you know, he came up to me and he said, I just I just got to let you know, this is the first time in eight years I've had any hope for my future. Wow. That's really wow. incredible. So so I just want to wrap it up by saying, Anna, you uh, embody exactly what we are trying to highlight on the returning citizen podcast this is exact there are believe it or not there are other people like anna out there doing so many amazing things yes. so i 
this is just one incredible person that's addressing this space and, and doing these amazing things. Um, you know, I, I just want to let everyone know to, to tune in. Uh, this is what we'll be highlighting moving forward here. Um, I'm excited to have Anna on again in the future to maybe talk about uh, getting hired in the restaurant industry or, or maybe some other topics that she has uh, some knowledge with. Um, I also wanted to extend a personal thank you uh, on behalf of Eric for the work that you've done uh, with him, helping him think through his own business plans um, and some of his different uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, I know that you've given him some advice that's been just unbelievably influential and, and helpful for him. Um, so thank you. And uh, we do hope to see you again. And I want to thank Brandon uh, for filling in very last minute. Eric got called into work unexpectedly uh, yesterday. So he found out he wasn't going to be able to be here. And Brandon filled in last minute. No questions asked. He was happy to help. Uh, so I want to I want to give a huge here. shout out to Brandon. And thank uh, you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah. And you know what? One thing I, I really do want to say, and maybe this should be like a rule to implement at at the end, always give the returning citizens some encouragement because I think there can never be enough, ne never enough of that. So I, I want to say to all returning citizens listening to families of returning citizens, keep your head up and keep hope. And I just want to mention that if anyone is interested in learning more about Recovery Park, the work that we do, or our hiring timeline, you can visit us on the web at recoverypark.org. Anyone can reach out to me anytime. My email address is akohn at recoverypark.org. If you're looking for a job and you're a returning citizen, housing opportunity, health clinics, anything like that, we, between my networks and me, we will find you the right fit. And so, you know, this is a place where we're, we are committed to helping make this a better place and make it a softer landing for those folks who are coming out.